technology changes at an exponential speed, while bureaucracy changes as at an incremental rate. Sometimes it goes backwards because I don't know how that works. But if you get enough bureauc- bureaucrats together, time the, the the clocks start running backwards. Have you noticed that as well? Actually, I know time slows down in the vicinity of bureaucrats. If you get enough of them together, it stops and then starts going the other way. Once more unto the breach, dear friends. I'll close the wall up with our English dead. Good morning and welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, to another exciting second hour of the Personal Wealth Coach, where Jeff McClure will be heard to say, It may be probable that something may happen. So stay tuned, kids. I've learned not to make promissory statements. Is that a promissory statement that you've learned? I have learned. That's past tense. I've learned, but I can't make any statements about the future. The future is always uncertain. But you're making a promissory statement about the past. No. Yeah, it's promissory. You you learned something. Yeah. You say you promise you learned it. I mean, it's not necessarily forbidden to say that you've learned something, but how well did you learn it? I learned it entirely too well. If you said, I've learned not to make promissory statements, but it's a promissory statement, it's kind of nah. like writing a letter that says, don't read this sentence. You actually have to read it to know you're not supposed to. Well, I suppose you're right. I'll, I won't argue with you about it, but I don't think things, statements about what happened in the past, I guess they could be promissory. Well, I mean, they are promissory. They're about, just I have not. I think about that for a while. They're, they're not inappropriately par- promissory. There we go. I think what you quoted Yoga Bear on earlier was probably one of the more wise things you could say. I've learned it's very, very difficult to make predictions, particularly when they're about the future. Yes. I also like his, his other statement about the future. It's just not what it used to be. That's true. This podcast is called The Personal Wealth Coach, and that's also the name of an SEC-registered investment advisory firm based in Salado, Texas. Now, the fact that it's registered with the SEC doesn't mean that the SEC approves or disapproves of anything, neither, neither does the secretary, whoever the secretary is, and this tape will destruct after it's listened to. You the dated yourself. This tape will destruct. Your podcast tape is about to self-destruct. That's why you can't find the tape in it anymore. <laughs> It already has self-destructed because it's too old. And uh, the information that we do present in this podcast, we get from sources we think are very reliable, but we don't make any guarantees as to the completeness or the accuracy of that reliability or anything else. We just do the best we can. The information that we're providing during this podcast is not considered investment advice. This information is educational because investment advice means that we know exactly who's listening and we can custom tailor all of our advice to them. So prepare to be educated. We actually got an email from John. Um, It's a great question. Uh, This is uh, kind of sort of in a direction I wanted to look at anyway. And he's talking about China here. He says reverse mergers is the subject. Can you explain how Chinese companies use reverse mergers to be able to list on U.S. stock exchanges? He's getting complicated. Um, This is similar to the SPAC boom, the special acquisition companies that we've seen recently. Uh, They're not new. They just have a new name. Um, There's a way of getting to the marketplace 
you can call it a reverse merger. You can call it subsuming. Uh, it's a way of doing it that's been done for a very long time. There's something out there called the pink sheets. Uh, you're very aware of the pink sheets because I remember doing filing in the pink sheets when you were doing pink sheets and getting carbon yep. all over my fingers. They actually don't have pink sheets anymore, but the pink sheet was something that we refer to as the over-the-counter stock exchange. So they're not listed on the New York Stock Exchange or any of the big exchanges. It It's kind of stuff like the NASDAQ started out being all pink sheets, and then they said, hey, let's let's make a whole bunch of them and put them together so that we can get quotes on them all in one place, which is why it's called NASDAQ, National Association of Securities Dealers Quote. Um, that's not what it's called anymore. It's just called NASDAQ, but that's what those letters come from. So this seems like I've gone completely off the subject from what the question was. What's a reverse merger and what does that have to do with the color of a paper when you're making a trade? Well, if you're not listed on one of the major exchanges, but you are publicly traded, which means that people can buy and sell your stock. You're on the over-the-counter exchange. And strangely enough, there's a lot of companies that aren't what they used to be on that exchange. The original founders were there and were replaced by somebody else over the years. And over the years, they sold off big chunks of their business. They're still listed, but they really don't have much in the way of value. Well, it's possible to step in and if you can find enough of the shareholders to buy from them, to buy a controlling interest in that company and then transfer assets into the company. So say you've now purchased a company, either just majority interest or the whole thing, and it's listed on a public exchange. If you add a bunch of assets to that company, you can now sell stocks for that company to the public in general. That's called a reverse merger. When you have a company yourself and you say, hey, I could go to an investment bank and it's going to cost a lot of money and we've got to do a lot of paperwork to get on uh, trading publicly. Uh, it's going to cost commissions on the sale of all these stocks to the original investment bank. And it's a great deal of scrutiny. Or we could buy that already available publicly traded company and add a lot of value to it and then sell more shares. So th those are two ways of doing it. And the Chinese companies have done it, but it's not protecting them from the regulatory scrutiny. And this is something that we would say about SPACs and about all the other companies that are out there that are trying to get to publicly traded without going through the loopholes and the, and the rigmarole and the red tape of actually listing themselves, you still have the same reporting requirements quarterly. When people talk about quarterly earnings stuff, when they talk about the bookkeeping and the generally accepted accounting practices, which is just a gap, they call it gap, but I like to pronounce all the A's just for the fun of it. But that's all still there. So it's not like a, a truly mysterious way of doing it. It's an old way of doing it with the same regulatory scrutiny and not a lot of the front-end marketing. So why somebody would do it is if you have a company that isn't sexy right now and you're afraid that the company's value is going to drop through the floor if you go to list, you can just buy another company 
that's worthless. And by buying that company, it becomes worth something. So you're able to share share with your shareholders, now new or old, that you've had a return since you got to the market. That and the hoops that are required to go jump through and the regulatory requirements and the procedural requirements for listing on the New York Stock Exchange or any exchange in the United States are pretty severe. Once you get listed, getting delisted is hard. You have to really work to do something really bad to get delisted. So a company can get listed with a bland vanilla company like a SPAC that really doesn't own anything, says, hey, we're just gonna sell we're just gonna sell stock in a company that doesn't own anything and we'll buy something later. And the regulatory requirements are pretty easy for a SPAC because it doesn't do anything. It's not making any profits. And then the SPAC can turn around and in essence take that money and buy some companies. And the regulatory requirements for buying a company once you're listed on the S and uh, on the S and P five hundred, not S P five hundred, but on Here's the New York Stock Exchange or any exchange. are very minor. Very minor. Basically, you just have to disclose what you're doing. So it's a way of getting around the intense regulatory scrutiny and the intense market scrutiny. Well, it's not so much market. To be listed on an exchange, the exchange has to approve your company. And if you're over the counter, you don't even have to be on an exchange. A lot of the SPACs aren't on the S&P 500. They're not in, in the New York I mean, Times, uh, in the New York... Uh, you mean they're not on the New York Stock Exchange? Stock Exchange, yeah. And we're saying this, the S&P 500, like it's an exchange. It's an index. Um, they're not listed on any of the major exchanges. They're over the counter, which means that... Well, this is kind of a, a nice little statement. How does the marketplace work? And it works a lot more like a grocery store than people think. Um, there are places that make a market in specific types of things, whether you're tomatoes or a given company's stock or a given company's bonds. Uh, and if you want to go buy tomatoes and you're buying it for your grocery store, which may be, in this analogy, a broker-dealer, there's a big supplier of tomatoes that everybody goes and sells them their tomatoes so that they are the ones that everybody knows to go to to buy tomatoes. They provide decent prices to the people they're buying from, and they provide decent prices to the people they're selling to. That's called a market maker. And people do that for stocks because on any given day, if you want to buy a million shares of Ford stock, there may not be a million shares trading that day. You could cause the market price of Ford to shoot up drastically unless you go to a market maker and say, I know you're holding a lot of Ford stock and we'd like to buy it, but we don't want it so badly that we want to triple the price of Ford. Can we buy this from you over the next four months? And they say, sure. That's what market making is. And that means that that trade, that mythical hypothetical sale of Ford stock didn't take place on the New York Stock Exchange. It didn't take place on a stock exchange at all. It was what's known as a private placement where you bought directly from an existing owner. Now you still have to go to the transfer agent of the company and say that you own it just like you do with a title on a house. Even if you bought it directly from the person who owned it, you have to show proof that you own it. So there's some other complications in there, but that's really a big chunk of the background of the market. Broker-dealers, Robinhood sells to E-Trade and vice versa. Uh, when, they're, when they look around and they say, should we sell this on the exchange or should we sell it directly to another broker-dealer who already has a demand for this stock? Can I get something in real quick? Yeah, absolutely. 
In your portfolio, you might want to think about something. Berkshire Hathaway has, over the long term, dramatically outperformed the market, the S&P 500. It just does so consistently over long periods of time. But interestingly enough, it, their earnings rose 7% year over year when they just announced. And the earnings were in, from railroads, utilities, and energy. So if if they're not doing real well right now, you and your portfolio is not doing like the S&P 500, don't worry about it. It's, it's expected. Last week, we talked about this last Monday being the first day where the moratorium on evictions and uh, and foreclosure on houses that were mortgaged through Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac um, went away. And it was true. Monday was the first day evictions could have happened if you could do them in a day. Because Tuesday... The Centers for Disease Control said, hey, the Delta variant's too high. We're putting in another 60 days. Now, this was directly based on uh, Joe Biden saying, do this. And Joe Biden says he doesn't think it'll stand up in a constitutional court, but he thinks it's it may be necessary for health or whatever. So it's likely to get lawsuited out. But it's also likely that the lawsuit may take more than 60 days to hear, so it doesn't matter. Well, there's um, there are evictions going on locally rather quickly since Texas lifted its moratorium. Right. If, if, if the, if the let's say, the rental property that you're renting isn't backed by a federally uh, by a federally backed guarantee loan of some kind, in other words, if the person just owns the property, they can evict you now in Texas. And if you're behind on your mortgage and it's not a federally guaranteed mortgage, you can be foreclosed on today. So we... Now, that's been true the whole point. time. That's been true I, the whole time in a lot of places. Texas said, wait, stop. I expect there's going to be an avalanche of this and as we come down the road, and it's going to be twofold. One, a lot of people who have those mortgages, they, they're making the pay. They have to make the payment on the mortgage even if they're not getting rent. Yeah. And they're starting to feel a lot of pain from that. So you're going to see, you're going to see the people, and this is what's really weird, you're going to see the people who own the property that have the renters that are not paying rent getting foreclosed on. And you're also going to see renters getting evicted. At some point, this is all going to release because in many cases, these renters have not been paying rent for several months. More than which several leads, months in a lot of cases, yeah. Which, which leads to a big conundrum. There is the thought that the unemployment benefits was keeping people from going back to work. Believe me, if people are looking at losing, being evicted, or being foreclosed on, the fact that they get some unemployment benefits is not keeping them from going back to work. Something else is keeping them from going back from work to work. And I've been researching the heck out of that. And I appreciate anything, anything that anybody can feed me from outside. Well, I but think this is like, a part of it. This is, and this is, they're, they're in a house that they can't, in essence, they can't get kicked out right now. There's cases where lots of cases of weirdnesses, like a landlord says, this is a two year, this, this, there's an article in the wall street journal today on this subject. Uh, a family said, we're going to give you a two-year lease. We're going to sell our primary residence. And at the end of the two years, we're going to move into that to that house as our primary residence. Well, she stopped, the tenant stopped paying rent in April of last year. The lease, the two-year lease came to an end in June. She's still in the house in August of the following year and cannot be removed from the house, not paying rent. Uh, so at, while the family that owns the home 
are now living 40 miles an hour away with with relatives because they've sold the house that they were supposed to sell to move into their other house, but they can't get into their other house. So there are some things that they could do. They could refinance that house to something other than Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac, and then they can foreclose. But refinancing a house when you haven't made payments on it because the rent hasn't been paid is impossible. So they're stuck. Uh, and in their case, in the Wall Street Journal, they're owed more than $50,000 in back rent. Um, Which they're not going to get paid, I'm quite confident. Yeah, it's it's gone. But you, to go to the question you were asking of why is it that you know, with this going on, why is it that we're, the jobs aren't out there when people are at risk of losing their house? And the answer is that mismatch. The places where the jobs are available are somewhere else. And if they leave the house without a job, right now they don't have to pay rent. If they leave the house without a job and they go to another house somewhere, they have to pay rent. So they have like been cemented into their location, even though the jobs have gone somewhere else. And until we get the evictions happening, and I know this sounds cold-blooded and horrible, but when we're talking on a large scale, demographic movements where you have like migrational changes and where people are living and working happen. And we're suspending that. And it's good reason to suspend it. We didn't want people running out without a house in the middle of COVID and getting it when you're in the middle of a lockdown. And the Delta variant is scary, but at some point, the pain of this has to be felt. It doesn't go away just because we ignore it. So evictions and foreclosures will take place. That will help to stabilize the employment situation, but there's going to be some big negatives in the meantime. That's one of those things that could trigger a correction in the market. Yeah, absolutely. We, get, we see the evictions and foreclosures really hit high we see a bunch of foreclosures where the banks are actually losing money because they say we're never going to get paid on this. But one of the interesting factors here is the banks that are most likely to be in- affected are already under g- government conservatorship. <laughs> These are Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. So uh, uh, if you're a shareholder of them, which you can be again, you may be about to experience uh, some big negatives. We'll see. One of we'll those see. things that we just don't know. Speaking of that, we don't want to go. We're almost we're halfway through the second hour, and we haven't mentioned the big the big news of nine hundred and forty three thousand net new employees. In yeah, that's, that's huge. Now that's after the revision for June, which raised it to nine hundred and thirty eight thousand. We have in the United States net of layoffs created two million jobs and put people in them in two months. Now, you only need to create about 150,000 jobs a month in the United States to accommodate the people who are coming into the job market from school. So we are in a recovery. We're, well, I say, actually, it's kind of funny. Part of the economy is not in a recovery because it's past recovery. The GDP of the United States is higher than it was before we went into this thing. By some estimates, we're already as high as we would have been had there been no pandemic, which means we're in expansion now, not recovery. On the other hand, we still have about 11 million people out there unemployed who really would like to work, who are looking for work and can't find jobs. Now, a lot of people say a lot of those people aren't really looking for work. I don't know. Uh, with the unemployment benefits being cut off after a long period of time, the long-term, the long-term unemployed numbers are dropping pretty fast, but there's still a lot of people out there unemployed who sincerely would like to have a job. And it's a mismatch. In many cases, it's a skill mismatch. 
a lot of the open jobs are in low wage areas. And the people who had higher income jobs who don't have a company to go back to, there's been a lot of bankruptcies along the way. Not an, unre- not an unreasonable number, but there's been a lot of people who, a lot of companies that have learned to get by with fewer people and they can't get their higher paying job back or they're having trouble finding a higher paying job or they're in a locale where they can no longer afford to live where the higher paying job is. We really won't know all the details to what's going on here and why we have such high unemployment at the same time we have a lot of employers looking for employees until somebody studies this in detail years down the road, which leads me to another subject if I could go on. Yeah. We have, we in the economics business, economics profession, I guess, suffer from something pretty bad. It's called lag. The best information we have right now, the best and most accurate information is from July and June and the second quarter. And here we are well into August and we're still talking about what happened in June and in the second quarter. Berkshire Hathaway, for example, I just reported, had 7% increase annually in earnings from one quarter to the next. And they had about a 20% rise in their stock price during that period of time when the S&P 500 was going up quickly. Well, that was the second quarter of the year, which is over a month behind us now. A lot of the data that we work with, the good, solid data that has been carefully researched and is accurate, is going to be 30 to 90 days old before we know it. In a regularly functioning economy where things move in slow motion, which they normally do, that's great. You get this tremendous sense of exactly where you've been and where you're going, and that's where you're probably still going because of the tremendous momentum in the economy. In the current economy, you're going to see, and in the current market, you're going to see things happen suddenly, unexpectedly, for the simple reason that there are external forces occurring here, namely the COVID Delta variant in this case, that are just happening instantly. And by the way, that's one of the reasons we report on the oil price. Oil prices fluctuate the way indexes oil near future prices. They fluctuate directly in accordance to what the oil market is seeing in the economy. And it's an instantaneous return. Right. The stock market, on the other hand, fluctuates primarily on what they think is going to happen six months to two years from now. The bond market is looking even further out and making guesses. And by the way, they sometimes get into big arguments as to what's going to happen between the bond market and the stock market. You have to look at all of those and make your best guess as to what the mass of people think is going to happen. But even the mass of people can be wrong in a situation where we can't, nobody predicted the COVID virus and nobody predicted the Delta variant being as severe as it's being. Now we're predicting it as being pretty severe and it's beginning to have an effect and we'll see how that works out. Talk about rig counts while you're at it. Yeah. Um, So Baker Hughes puts out a uh, a rig count and let me see if i've got a couple of I think it I think it's rigged. Uh, ha ha. It's a rigged rig count. Um and uh looking from a year ago. So North America rig counts, active rig counts. This is Baker Hughes keeps track of these and and some of them are um uh, so this is the rotary rig count. This isn't talking about fracking. Uh, you need to tell you what you're talking about. This is oil drilling rigs. Yes, oil drilling rigs. Um, a year ago, there were 294 active rotary rigs in the United States and in Mexico and Canada. So North America. There are now 647. This is more than doubled. Uh, when we look... Uh, Gulf of Mexico. So people think, well, it's everywhere. The Gulf of Mexico, that's, you know, offshore. Last year, I there, think were, it is. there were 12 of them. And this year, there's 14 of them. And so, that's not as high as it could be, by the way. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of room to develop in the Gulf of Mexico if the price keeps, you know, goes up 
tremendously. So the reason why there's only two new ones is because the price, while it's come up quite a lot, it's cheaper to get oil from other places. So uh, inland waters, that's exactly the same number of rig counts as before. Offshore has gone up a bit more on the United States. They went from two to 14, but it's really that they just reopened some some offshore rigs that that had been put offline so what i mean i'm talking about a lot of numbers here texas is a really easy one 104 rigs were active a year ago there's 229 this year so when you say the prices change instantaneously these rigs come up online pretty quick too and they go offline pretty quick when prices change one of the things i read in the wall street journal this week that i thought was interesting and accurate is the fracking industry has matured, and it's matured to the point where a lot of people got burned really badly when oil went to negative prices and faced bankruptcy. Most of them didn't go bankrupt, although a number of them did. But once you've stared bankruptcy in the face, savings becomes important all of a sudden. You think, this could happen again to me. So the the fracking companies are not going all out and drilling new wells all over the place in the Permian Basin and so on like they did the last time around. The prices went up. They're rather hoarding cash to a great degree because they're concerned that the oil prices could crash again. Once mature uh, industries go through this or professions go through this where you, you come in, you see this wonderful opportunity, you spend and you borrow and you borrow and you spend and you make a lot of money and everything is going along just fine, sounds like the market. Then all of a sudden the bottom falls out. And if you survive that, you're kind of like survive. It's a Darwinistic survival of the fittest. The ones who survive it learn and say, in the future, I am not going to be in the position where I don't have enough cash to weather another downturn like the last one we have. So you don't spend all your money, you don't borrow money, you pay off debts, which I, is going on across the economy right now. I got to throw a little far side in here in the middle of that, because if the bottom fell out and you evolved from it, then those that remain are all bottomless. Just, just be aware of that. We have a bunch of evolved bottomless frackers out there. Well, they, they would like to be bottomless. They would like to go deeper. <laughs> yeah um yeah so what you're saying is is absolutely a massive statement about oil in general about how we're getting our energy it looks like you have more to say on the subject well no i can't i was going to change the subject to something else similar to it was a segue okay let's segue the chip industry is fixing itself yes it's just, it's, it's, there's a lag there too. We, there's a shortage of chips to do a lot of things because the chip industry, the chip making industry was simply not prepared for the fact that you need to have literally, you know, this is an amazing, 20 times the number of computer chips in a car to sell it today that you needed a couple of years ago. Right. I was looking at new cars, just idly looking at new cars on the market and they all are very, very proud of the fact that they have nearly self-driving capabilities, all the upper-scale cars and many of the mid-scale cars. And those all take a lot of computer chips. There's really, basically a really, really, really smart computer in there that was a heck of a lot smarter than the one that took us to the moon. And You mean the abacus that took us to the moon? Well, there was actually a computer in there, but <laughs> there's smarter than the IBM 360s. Your car has more computer in it than existed in the world about 30 years ago. Right. If you buy a new car today and it's almost self-driving, it won't quite self-drive and you need to pay attention to it. But a lot of the newer cars, the 2021 models and the 2022 models that are coming out, you don't even need to have your hands on the wheel. But you need to, if you're not paying attention, it'll go to alert how it's actually watching your eyes to tell whether you're paying attention to the road. So 
we have this tremendous upsurge in the number of computer chips it takes to make an automobile. And a lot of people are buying automobiles, and the chip industry had been consolidating. Uh, Intel, for example, one of the prime maker of chips, was selling off its chip-making industry because the new need for new and innovative chips was dying. Now, they reversed that now, and now they're buying chip makers and building new factories. But this will fix itself because the price of chips has gone up tremendously. And when that's the thing about a free market system that works so well. When the price goes up, people start building new stuff. One of the indications, though, is that we'll get, they'll build a lot of new factories, they'll make a lot of new chips, and the prices of chips will crash again, which, by the way, happens just as regularly as it does with oil. Well, regularly, as frequently as it does with oil. But that's the night, one of the things we can feel assured of. There's shortages of a lot of things right now. There's, and that's driving inflation and it's driving shortages in, when you go to try to buy things. But it's fixable. And it's fixable in a capitalist system because the fact that we're willing to pay more for these things means that more people will be willing to make them. The fact that we're willing to pay more for a meal means more people will be able to work at a restaurant. We've uh, dined out recently at several places. And uh, although we're probably going to stop now in light of the Delta variant, or at least we're going to slow down, we notice something. In the low-priced places, they're short on wait staff. In the middle, median-priced places where we prefer to dine out because the food's better, they got plenty of people in there on wait staff, but, and people are paying high tips. And I talk to the wait staff, and they're just happy as they can be. And the, the companies are having very flexible schedules. They're bending tremendously to fit their employees, and it's working. And they've raised their wages. That's going on across the board, and that's a wonderful thing about a free enterprise system. It equates to a short burst of inflation, which we're seeing, but it's a good short burst of inflation as opposed to a bad one. In this particular case, and I remember the big inflation rise in the 1970s very, very well, the unions would kept raising what they would charge to do exactly the same work. There was no supply and demand issue. It was just a matter of we want more money. And that would present more money to buy to pay for more things, which made the price of things go up. We're not there anymore. And I think this, by the way, they think this inflation burst will go away and will be settled back down to around something a little above 2% before too long. I agree. And it's almost time to do commercials again. If you'd like to join the conversation, our email address in here is uh, jake or jeff at tpwc.com. And we'll be back on the other side of these vitally important messages from our sponsors. Uh, so we're going to go ahead and keep talking. We got lots more to talk about. Yeah, quick thing. Uh, there's the infrastructure bill that's going through Congress right now that is uh, roughly a trillion dollars. And when I say roughly a trillion dollars, because you can't really ever be exact in any of the numbers going through Congress, it doesn't matter if you think you are, you're not, because it depends on what year you're talking about and what your inflation rates are and all that stuff. So I'm going to say roughly, uh, roughly a trillion dollars. One of the holdups is taxing on cryptocurrencies. The Biden administration thinks that they could come up with like $28 billion by just going in and auditing the cryptocurrency exchanges. Um, and he's probably right. 
Because anecdotally, I know of a lot of people that are making trades in Bitcoins that haven't a clue how to report it. And the currency exchanges are not sending 1099s because that's kind of the whole thing. You're anonymous somehow. So you don't have a, a social security number associated with your trades. And if that's the case and the IRS gets involved and says, all right, let's start collecting some of this. So when would you owe money? If you owned a Bitcoin, if you bought a Bitcoin and you haven't sold it, you don't owe any money. But if you bought a Bitcoin and then you sold it and you made a bunch of money, you owe taxes on the gains. That is, unless you did it somehow in an IRA account, which is another set of complications, you're not allowed to own cryptocurrencies and IRAs at this point. So... This kind of falls in a weird category similar to marijuana in that it's there's a bunch of stuff that's against federal law that's going on because the federal law hasn't caught up with the circumstances yet. Um, and on that subject, this is an interesting kind of economic conundrum. Uh, marijuana, it's legal in m- more than half of the states. It is recreational in more than dozens of the states. And in becoming recreational, le- recreationally legal, they're still not allowed to accept credit cards from the federal banking system to pay for it because it's still a federal cl- crime. So we've just stated that the majority of the United States is breaking federal law, but they're still not allowed to use credit cards doing it, even though it's stately legal, but not country-wise legal. Um, There's some weirdness going on in our time. There's always weirdness happening in any given time period. Like we, the laws on alcohol are still very strange in the, in the state of Texas in that you can't drink alcohol or buy alcohol on Sunday mornings. Why is that? Well, there was a really important religious reason, reason for that in the 1930s. We still follow it. You can't buy beer on Sunday morning. Okay, well, that's a law that's taken a long time to change. Um, When technology changes or culture changes, it takes the law a long time to get caught up. If it ever does, they usually are tweaking the thing long after it's no longer a viable industry. Um, and, And Douglas North, who's one of our favorite economists of all time, He won the Nobel Prize in the 20th century, and he talks about intellectual property, and he talks about what happens in big socioeconomic collapses and all these other things. But one of the things that he talks about that is vitally important is how quickly technology changes versus how quickly the bureaucracy that regulates technology changes. And he said this very clearly. Technology changes at an exponential speed, while bureaucracy changes as at an incremental rate. Sometimes it goes backwards because I don't know how that works. But if you get enough bureauc- bureaucrats together, time the, the the clocks start running backwards. Have you noticed that as well? Actually, I know time slows down in the vicinity of bureaucrats. If you get enough of them together, it stops and then starts going the other way. So. You know, they've got we the, should we, ha, should, we ha, should work on the physics of that. You're right. There's got to be uh, physics dissertations in this uh, somewhere. So well, that I, concept of go ahead. Actually, 
Einstein once, when asked to explain relativity, he says, when you're in the vicinity of your relatives, time goes slower. There you go. And that's, that's a great explanation. When you're in, in the vicinity of a bureaucrat, time goes very much slower. So what does that have to do with what we're talking about? The bureaucracies are what regulate. So taxes, these are, I mean, we still need to have roads. We still need to pay for our military. We still need to pay for social security and Medicare and the other things that we pay for at the governmental level. Uh, if, if we want to continue to do that, we have to continue to accept tax revenue from the citizens and, and residents of the country. So this is the constant battle of government has a place, but we don't want it to get out of hand. But we also have new things that are popping up that don't fall under any of the old rules, but should somehow. Uh, the fact that we're still regulating cable companies under rules that were made in the 1990s is fascinating to me because cable companies are not anything like what they were in the 1990s. If we look at how social network companies, and you hear a lot of complaints on both the Democrat side and the Republican side about whether or not they should have immunity from prosecution based on whether somebody else is written on their site or not. Those laws were originally intended for blog sites with newspapers, where a newspaper didn't have to defend the fact that it left the comments open and there's some trolls talking trash on a subject matter that's actually factually represented. So we're using like duct tape in our legal system constantly. I don't think people recognize that. I, and I don't think anybody thinks we have an efficient system. But the amount of duct tape that we have holding things together on any given moment, the tax code, it should actually be called tax codes because none of it's actually in the same language because it's been written by, what, 30-some-odd Congresses. You had something it's, you wanted to say? Well, that's just the nature of our system. Our government was set up where it couldn't move quickly. You know, we, we used to talk about the difference in this, and, and we used to say it with a, as a joke, but the difference between Congress, the difference between pro and con is the difference between progress and Congress. Yeah. Congress moves very slowly. It's because they're surrounded by bureaucrats. They're in that time we, warp zone. We didn't regulate securities until the 1929 market crash, and it still took us five years to get a, securities, a pair of Securities Act together to regulate what went on in the securities trading industry. Uh, until we get a crisis, Congress generally doesn't act. We need a consensus among the American people that something new laws need to be passed and new things need to be done before we actually can move. Otherwise, it's a continual battle over little things. And in, along the way, the regulatory agencies and the, the, the Treasury and the other places that try to keep stability in the economy and the Federal Reserve, this puts Band-Aids on things. You know, I, I think there's several areas that need good regulation right now, but I think there's a lot of lobbyists from the industries who keep it from happening. And until we get a crisis generated by one of those areas, we probably won't make a law, which is sounds bad on the surface. But in some ways, that's a good thing because that means Congress is not passing new restrictive laws all the time because somebody thinks they ought to be passed. If you're in a dictatorship, as in China, uh, all it takes is one person to decide that we need something heavily regulated and it gets regulated. Uh, which reminds me, there is a big one of the big effects that's going on in the in the emerging markets area right now, 
and certainly events will affect the whole world marketing system is there's a major governmental crackdown going on in China. Big corporations listing in the United States have been basically hammered down. Right. And there's a low scale mercantile warfare happening at the same time where they are intensely competing against each other for the scraps that are falling down from the government. It's fascinating. And that, that, by the way, historically, there's no guarantee that it won't work this time, but historically that has been a recipe for disaster for a government when they gain more central control. But Chairman Z is well on the way to becoming an emperor. He's already been voted in as dictator for life, in effect. And he is cracking down on the free enterprise system that has propelled China to be one of the, the second largest economy in the world. Uh, there's a great article this week in the Wall Street Journal that said um, China is more interested in industry than Internet. And that, True. Uh, they are cracking down on very successful com companies that are doing things like finance and service-oriented stuff on the Internet and yet giving massive subsidies, even sometimes to the same company for their ownership in industrial manufacturing facilities. So they're making a very clear statement in China that they're staying away from things like uh, ride sharing and uh, food, delivery. food delivery and online banking and all of that stuff. That's government stuff. Stay out of it. There's basically two big experiments. There's a big experiment going on. One side of it is the United States where we have pretty much a free market system, despite the fact that we sometimes gripe about the fact that it's not. Because there's no the such thing as free, free. But we have the freest market in the world. Right. And for instance, the tutoring services, any tutoring service in, the United, in, in China, which was a big investment target for people in the United States recently, have been forced to go nonprofit cost many billions of dollars for U.S. investors. They're going with an experiment of greater centralized control to try to eliminate excesses. We, generally speaking, are allowing the excesses to take place and only deal with them if they become a crisis. If they become damaging to the other companies around them or, other, or, or to their customers. And we have another question. Philip, thanks. Um, and his uh, question is on buying land. Does land in general appreciate and would you consider it a good long-term investment? The land is close to urban areas. A simple answer to that is land historically over, especially undeveloped land, over long periods of time tends to average an appreciation that's equal to inflation and taxes. So if you look at what you're paying on property taxes and you put that in a separate column, and you put inflation in a separate column, long-term raw land tends to appreciate just to keep up with its value at that given moment. So taxes and inflation come off of it. And it's one of the things to look at is what urban area it's close to. Uh, demographic marketplace research on land is important, especially if you're buying it raw and you want to sell it later um, at a better price. So as I said before, demographics are really important here. If you're near Austin um, and you're buying land, you may already be as appreciated as you're going to be. But if you're 20 or 30 miles farther away, you're starting to get into possible 10-year planning for the sale of that property. We're almost out of time. What were you going to say? Basically, land appreciates according to supply and demand. And if you can anticipate the supply is going to be short and the demand is going to be higher, 
high for that particular piece of land, then you're probably buying something that will appreciate. Something the problem that is-, is you can't generalize and say that a piece of land that's far away from services, far away from internet, far away from anything else is going to appreciate at all. Right. And we can talk about that more next week because uh, there's, there's a lot of intricacies there. But we're out of time for this week. So if you would like to talk to us off the air, we have voicemail waiting during the weekends and real live people during the week at... 254-947-1111. Or toll-free 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. You can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com. We've got a contact form there. You can email us directly, jeff or jake at tpwc.com. On the webpage, we have radio recordings going back lots of years. We've got newsletters going back lots of years. Check back on us. See what we were saying before big drops. Until next week, we uh, really appreciate you listening. This has been The Personal Wealth Coach.